The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 202 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We've got such a great conversation coming up. But first, we do want to thank two new reviewers uh, on Apple Podcast. The listener names are Nikki N.S. Gibb and Johnson B. 14. Both left just wonderful reviews. Thank you so much for the kind words. And the show just keeps on growing. And this certainly helps. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, My guests on the show this week, Brian and Karen Hill. I was so thrilled to meet Brian and Karen. And it's kind of funny. They were a request from a listener who had reached out uh, to our uh, producer, Gene, and had requested them saying they'd be wonderful. And that listener was right. They were amazing. In 1997, there was a um, celebration of the Mormon Trail wagon train, and they actually reenacted the entire thing. And Brian and Karen were instrumental in that. They were leaders of this and the stories they have from that event, not to mention just getting to hear Karen's conversion story. I just love the hills. The funny thing is, we're in the same stake. (laughs) We had never met each other, never heard of each other. But uh, so thank you to whoever you are, the listener who requested them. And I had uh, them in my home, which was a blessing. Always good to meet people. But uh, just love Brian and Karen. They're coming up. And coming up this week in my Latter-day life, let's go trekking. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, at the request of one of our listeners, we have two incredible guests Right here live in the Latter-day Live studio. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian and Karen Hill. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Well, we're super excited to hear your story. We have a conversion story, which all of our listeners absolutely love. But also, you were both able to take part in something incredible that happened a few years ago. We're going to hear all about uh, the Trek celebration you were able to take part in. And I have a ton of questions about that. But first of all, we have to get to know you. So, uh, Brian, why don't we start with you? Sure. So, I grew up in a place called Magna, Utah. It's west of Salt Lake. Um, came to BYU and uh, served my mission on the Navajo Indian Reservation, which was a great blessing for me. And came home and uh, wasn't sure what to do in my life. I, I had planned to be a lawyer, but my mission changed my way of thinking dramatically. Searched around, found a field called outdoor recreation, and uh, followed that to uh, South Carolina, where I did a PhD in Parks, Recreation, and Tourism, and then have been a professor at University of Nebraska, and then um, here at BYU for the last 23 years in experience design and management now. Mm, amazing. And, you know, if it sounds familiar to some of our audience that you served on a Navajo reservation, uh, the Navajo Mission, which I had never heard of, until we did have one guest 
whose name is Garth Smith. Tell us about your relation with Garth, Garth Smith. So Garth and I were on our mission at the same time. We were in the same district multiple times together and became close friends. Isn't that amazing? And I'll, I'll tell our audience, because our audience loves Garth Smith, that uh, we actually FaceTimed with Garth just before this this interview, which is just awesome. Yeah, it was great to see each other. Yeah, so when you were growing up, what were what were you into? What were you like as a, a younger man? Well, I loved football, but I wasn't very good at it. And um, I was focused on school, I think, and uh, wanting to do good as much as I could and be good at school. And I guess that was probably, I, I did a lot of outdoor things with my family. So were you raised in the church? Yeah. My parents, I have nine generations of Mormon ancestors who... Wow. Some crossed, I think 50 crossed the plains in my direct line. and That's amazing. Yeah. So it's a kind of an old Mormon history, I guess. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then let's jump over now to Karen. Uh, Karen, tell us where you're from. Yeah, I'm from South Carolina and uh, grew up probably as far west in South Carolina as you can get and still be there. So in the, <laughs> in the Appalachian Mountains and the foothills there. Beautiful country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't really see a sunrise till I moved away from there, because all the trees, you never saw a sunrise <laughs> or sunset. Um, just saw the sun overhead. Um, yep, I grew up in a, a family that um, uh, was a little bit dysfunctional. Um, my mother was a member of the church all her life. And um, her grandfather was the first person to be baptized hmm. in that part of South Carolina. Oh, that's um, neat. So I, I kind of had that in the background of my life. But my father never joined the church and would not allow uh, my brother and I to go to church uh, with my mom. But yeah, so growing up in South Carolina, um, when I was uh, entering ninth grade was the first year that our schools were desegregated. In ninth grade, wow. Yeah. So. See, we think of that as being something that happened so long ago, but that's pretty recent history, and especially in some parts of the country. Yeah, we were we were probably later than a lot of other parts of the country, and I believe this was in 1969. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and vivid, vivid memory of being a skinny, scrawny little ninth grader walking in high school for the first day into a situation that um, was racially diverse then. Were there protests and was there a lot of hubbub about it? Not in our town. There wasn't because, uh, like I say, we, we probably were late in the game one of the last um, areas of the country to desegregate. So there wasn't, um, I don't remember any protests or, um, of course, when you're, you know, in ninth grade, you're not really aware of a lot of things that sure. are going on with adults, but I wasn't aware of anything. Yeah. And then as kids, we got along pretty well. One mm. of my friends who played sports said he thinks it's because our city recreation program was already desegregated. Oh, okay. And yeah. so when we all got to high school, um, we'd already had a lot of experience with, um, with some of the black kids in the, in the town. Mm, that's and, great. And so it went pretty smoothly. I just yeah. remember one little hitch. 
yeah. one hitch and with a bomb threat, and we all had to leave school one day. Yeah. And yeah, there were people who did not want to let that go. Yeah, and what a blessing that uh, everything worked out. So, yeah. so were you aware growing up that hey, mom goes to church and I'm not allowed, or was it just something that just kind of didn't happen? No, I was definitely aware of it because on Sundays we would get up and my mom would dress my brother and me in our Sunday clothes and then my dad would take us to the Baptist church and she would go off to her meetings mm. in the morning and then it was a regular Sunday for all of us for the rest of the day until it got to be the wonderful world of Disney time on yes, Sunday evening. Of course. And my mom would leave again. Because during that time they had the morning meetings and right. the evening uh, sacrament meeting. And so she would leave while I was watching Wonderful World of Disney. <laughs> and, I, and, and I didn't realize it when I was a kid, the impact that that had on me. But later on, I thought that, that solidified her commitment mm to what she would do every Sunday, every Sunday. I don't remember her ever missing. Wow. That she would send us off, she would go, and then she would return on the evenings and leave us again. Did you consider yourself Baptist then growing up? Oh, like, yeah. Would you, you self-identified as Baptist? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I remember one year, and she supported me on this, I wanted to have 100% attendance at the Baptist church because then you got a little pin or something, I don't remember. <laughs> and we went on vacation, and she made sure I went to a Baptist church so I could get my attendance pin. That there. is amazing. Did you have interaction with uh, members of the church far as like home teachers or visiting teachers was your dad open to any of that no 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 we weren't allowed to um talk about church or anything wow at home i remember once and maybe i can say this that she decided that she wanted to read scriptures with my brother and me before my dad got home from work and she just randomly opened the scriptures and started reading and it was something about circumcision, and my brother, <laughs> and my brother and I, we were just little, and said, "What's that, mom?" And she said, "Oh, we're done with scriptures now, and we never read it again." <laughs> oh, I love that. That is so funny. Well, all right. So then, at some point, obviously, the church ends up playing a very prominent role in your life. Tell us a little bit about your conversion. And Brian, if you're a part of this, I don't know if you came in after. before. After, okay. So, yeah. so let's talk about your conversion, and then we'll get to how uh, how you two met. Wow. Well, that's a that's a great story too. I love <laughs> and it. And it does have something to do with church. All right. Um, yeah i um, i I became aware after um, I graduated high school that you know I I really paid no attention to religion. Mm. Actually, um, I mean, I went to I went to church on Sundays, and while I was in high school, and my friends and I sat on the back row and talked about what we did the night before, right? Yeah, and that was about the extent of my religiosity um, mm. at that point. Um, but then I um, I don't know somewhere after I finished um, my first college degree that. I became interested in the church and and what it was all about. And I had a really steady boyfriend at that time. 
and the missionaries came over. I remember they came over. It was a year of the Olympics, and the missionaries came over and watched the Olympics with us mm. in my apartment and never talked about church, really. And um, But they just kept coming and coming, and finally I, they must have intro- invited me to read the Book of Mormon. And I picked it up, and I read it, and I was working full-time at the time, and I read it cover to cover in two weeks. Wow. I get up in the morning and I would read a couple of pages and then, oh, I have to go to work. And then I'd come home at lunch and I would open it up again and I'd read a little bit more. Mm. And I just couldn't get satiated with reading the Book of Mormon. Um, and nothing came of it, though. Mm. And I went through two years worth of missionaries. Wow, Really? And still not wanting to change my the way I was living. I was, you know, a college kid and working and just living a worldly life. You know, I was partying on the weekends and boyfriends and but I always had this little voice in the back going, There's something, there's something out there. And then I started attending church, and I was even given a calling before I was baptized. Oh, wow, you don't hear that too often. No, I was a sunbeam teacher. (laughs) You were teaching sunbeams before you were baptized. I was. Now, I hope I don't get anybody in trouble about that. (laughs) I think it's wonderful. (laughs) And obviously, it worked out well. Well, and so I was teaching sunbeams, and so I had my foot in both of these worlds. Mm. Like, oh, this is, you know, a religion that I'm gravitating towards, and... You know, and I had family history here, and then I still wanted to go play. Yeah, sure. And um, I found myself pregnant Mm. um, at this point in time. And uh, I was going to give the baby up for adoption through LDS Social Services. But after he was born, I said, no, I can't do that. Yeah. I just can't do that. And my mom was very supportive, and I went back. And so a month after, and, and while, um, before he was born, the missionaries came to visit me. Mm. And I said, I want to be baptized. And, they, and at that point in time, um, you weren't allowed to be baptized if you were pregnant and unmarried. Really? And so I wasn't allowed to be baptized until after the birth of my son. I did not know that. And, well, at least in that mission, I guess. Yeah. And so a month after the birth of my son, I was baptized. Wow. And What an amazing journey. <laughs> that is really amazing. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. So how old were you when you were baptized? 25. 25? Yeah. And now you're figuring out life new member of the church, old teacher of sunbeams, old, old hat at it. You knew what you were doing. <laughs> and, now, and then raising a son. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of life changes all at once, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. What a time. Okay. So then eventually you two meet up. Now I'm dying to hear how the two yeah, of so, you got well, together. Well, let me, let, me, let me keep going. Oh, well, then I get to say something? Not yet. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not in the picture yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um... 
I was working at a place where I actually was really good friends with my boss. And eventually we got together and and I told him that I wouldn't be interested in any further relationship with anybody who wasn't a member of the church. Mm. And so he investigated, and we had missionaries, sister missionaries who came who were just awesome, and he was baptized. Holy cow. And he became active, and things were going really well with us, and we had made plans to be married. And during the meantime, he had taken another job in New York, and so we were kind of having this long-distance relationship um, for a while. And he came down to visit one weekend, and um, we started talking about what it would mean to get married, get married in the temple, what it would be like you know, to make those covenants, to um, wear the sacred clothing. And he basically freaked out. Really? Yeah, he just freaked out mm. over all of that. And then from then, things started to deteriorate. And I took him back to the airport, and I remember sitting in a pizza hut. And because I was relatively new in the church and didn't understand how the Spirit can talk to you yeah. and communicate with you, I remember sitting in the pizza hut, and it was before I took him to the airport, and it was like my mind got dark. Mm. Just dark. And um, afterwards, you know, later, I realized that was the Spirit telling me this probably is not the right thing for you to, to do yeah. to be with this guy. Wow. And, uh, and so he came down one more time, I think, and we attended church that Sunday, and Brian had come to um, that part of the country to get his Ph.D., and so he was at church. And uh, my boyfriend came up to me after church and said, come here, I want to introduce you to someone who is studying a program that I might be interested in. So my fiancé <laughs> introduced me to Brian. I love it. How fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and I had been through a similar journey in some ways because I had left BYU, graduated single, which, you know, is such a rare thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I was pretty lost. I went to South Carolina, looked around, and said, boy, this is going to be a desert. Uh, because I had been engaged and called off a marriage seven days before the marriage the summer before I came. Whoa, wait a minute. What? <laughs> so we had both been wait, in relationships. Seven days that before failed. the wedding. We had called it off. You guys and, realize this story for both of you is just awesome. Yeah. Like, everything then, about this is awesome. So we both had come so we we both were in the same situation of a of a failed uh, engagement and that's when I met Karen when I, my first week in South Carolina, or maybe it was the second um, second Sunday there. When I was pursuing my PhD, so so Brian, I just I've always wondered because that's the closest of anyone I I know. I yeah. mean, I know there have been people who literally the day of back out, but seven days. Seven before, days. How did your family react to that? You know, my parents were probably kind of happy. They knew things were pretty rocky, and they whisked me away out of town immediately, <laughs> and we went to a John Denver concert in Ogden. <laughs> 
country road take me home. That was it. Oh, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. So now here you are after this crashed experience. You're this this is not likely. As I hear the story, I would think that you would both be like really happy to commiserate about how horrible being engaged and everything else is. But instead, this brought you together. So Yeah, and it took a few months. Yeah, the first time that we really uh, talked with each other, it was a young single adult hike. Mm -hmm. And during the hike, I had my son. He was six then, five, Mm -hmm. five. And uh, we'd gone on a hike with the the group, and my son got a little rock in his foot. Mm. And Brian and I had just been talking as we'd hiking the whole way, and he he took care of my son's little foot. And I'd like, oh, that's so endearing. Then he started calling me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm thinking. As guys do. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's a long way from home. He's younger than me. (laughs) I'll talk to him. Yeah, I'll feel sorry for him and give him a little bit of my time. And then how long did you date before you got married? Well, that's pretty interesting because it was... We talked for months. We talked for a couple months. She did flirt with me at the Halloween party of the ward. Nice. Yeah, but then after that, we finally went out in mid-November and were engaged by December 7th. We dated 10 times. Yeah. Quick. Yeah, it was It was like the angels came and said, you're supposed to Once be together. Once you started dating, that was yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So then you're... Now you're living out in South Carolina. Yeah. You're working on your doctorate, and now you're this family. Yeah. Like, that's, these are all so many, these are big changes for yeah, both Yeah, they of were. You. So we were, we were married two months after we got engaged, and then we were a family. Yeah, my wife and I, we got married less than four months after our first date. I always think that's quick. You guys, somewhat, I guess you were talking for a while before then. Yeah, but, but about three weeks. But, yeah. it's, but it's fast. I mean, that's. Yeah, I think when it's right, it's right. I always tell people with with ours, you know, we were literally first date May twenty sixth, married September seventeenth. Wow. I always say I don't recommend it, but boy, it worked out well for yeah. us. <laughs> I think yeah. that's I would never tell my children you should try it. <laughs> exactly. Right? Or, or anyone yeah. you care about. You don't tell them <laughs> nope. you should do this. No. Uh, it's not great advice. Mm-mm. All right, so you end up leaving South Carolina and where did you go from South Carolina? So we went to the to Nebraska. It was the first job offer I had. We just thought, well, we'd love to live go back to the West. Or stay in the South, or maybe up in New England. Never thought we'd go to the Midwest. Midwest but, uh, it is. Yep. So we went to Nebraska, and we were there for 10 years. Um, but we were there about uh, just a few years. I um, got tenure there at the University of Nebraska. And I remember sitting around saying, well, what, what do I do now? I've kind of been doing everything I could do to get tenure. And remember sitting together saying, what what should we do? What should we focus on? And it was coming up to the time of the 150th anniversary of the Mormon Trail, which where we lived in Nebraska actually crossed about 150 yards from where we lived. Really? So we, we talked about starting a Nebraska Mormon Trails Association and kind of focusing some attention there. And, uh, and so we got involved a lot in thinking about Mormon Trail history and and uh, coming up to that 150th anniversary was important for us. Yeah. So that's is that's when you started getting involved in the whole Mormon Trail commemoration. Yeah. Sort of our halfway through our time there in Nebraska. 
That's really incredible. What is it about that that was so exciting to you? Um, you know, I was, I think that uh, I was serving as stake president at the time. And I thought that this celebration of the Mormon trail and the history of the saints through Nebraska would do marvelous things for us as far as missionary work goes. It would make uh, people pay attention. There would be there would be publicity. It just seemed like a great opportunity to be able to pay to to uh, focus attention on the church. Yeah. When people say so, when we say the Mormon Trail, the Mormon Trail, and that's what the commemoration really was. Yeah. What exactly are we talking about? So you know that the saints in 1846 left Nauvoo and came to winter quarters. It took them that whole summer to just get across Iowa. And then the next year, 1847, they came from Omaha, Nebraska, winter quarters, all the way across Nebraska, Wyoming, and into Utah to arrive in the Salt Lake Valley. So the trail's about 1,000 miles, and uh, our stake actually has 300 of those in it. It's a huge stake in central Nebraska. 300 miles of the trail was in your stake. It was in our stake, yeah. Yeah, now living in Utah, that just blows my mind. Yeah. I mean, I know that exists elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, I'm from out of state also, but yeah. But my goodness, I forget that there are... Yeah, our stake was 200 by 250 miles, so 50,000 square miles. That is unreal. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about... Let's, let's get into the, the 150th celebration then. Yeah. Uh, how did you get involved in, in, in an official capacity? So uh, while I was serving um, in my ecclesiastical position, I was asked by the area presidency to... Um, to, to uh, be in charge of the celebration of the trail for Nebraska. So there were four stakes, and I just m- met with those leaders in those stakes. But as that happened, there were people who started to talk about a wagon train. And so I contacted Elder Hugh Pinnock, who was the area president at the time, mm. and said, there are all these different people who are talking about doing celebrating the trail and having a wagon train. And it seems like if we had multiple trains... It would be confusing. It wouldn't serve the purposes of the church so much. And you know what he said? He said, yeah, see what you can do about that. So I called together all these people, and we met in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, and said, you know, we have this great celebration. The church is interested. They sent public affairs missionaries, people who were members of the church, and those who were not were interested in celebrating. And we formed a nonprofit organization, and they asked me to be the chairman, and so... We were off and running, and we were not well organized. It's sort of a miracle that ever happened. <laughs> well, that's not an easy thing to organize. I mean, I've done, I got to be a paw on Trek for our, and it was uh, just our ward. And, I mean, that was, that felt like a massive thing. And that's that's where the church has its official site. There's kind of a plug-and-play program to it. It yeah. still felt huge. So how long did it take to prepare so this was in August, and and we left the next April. But things really didn't start. We had to do a total reorganization just because of sort of people who'd put themselves forward and said they could do things, and then it all sort of fell apart. And we really put it together between February and April. My goodness. Yeah. How do you start? Like where? So you were actually doing hand carts. We did. We had we had about thirty wagons at a time. We had 
10 hand carts. We had people, maybe 40 people on horses. The average day, we had 500 participants. I just, the safety part of it alone. Uh, yeah. Must have been so much, like to have medical. And well, we, have... we didn't have as much as maybe we should have. We had one <laughs> EMT and, um, and, and ambulances that could come from nearby towns. And we actually had way more, I thought, because Elder Ballard was in charge of the, of the celebration for the church. And he told me that, the, that uh, the apostles and the First Presidency were praying for us. And I thought, nothing bad will happen. <laughs> and the well, first day, a horse roars up and rolls over someone's shoulder. And, and um, we have accidents probably nearly every day. A horse rolled onto somebody. Roll, yeah, on the you know they re- reared up and fell over him and <laughs> crossed over him, and uh, and we saw many miracles. It seems like God was not necessarily protecting us, but He showed His arm. So what happened that very first day is is um, the after this accident, you can imagine this wagon train gets spread out pretty far. It might be a mile from one end to the other. Sure. If you're on foot, that's not easy. So, so this happens and, uh, somebody finds out about the accident and they came back to where I was. I was walking with the hand carts and, uh, and they, they had taken, um, this, this, uh, brother who had been, uh, crushed basically to a clinic and they had found that he had, uh, three broken ribs, a broken collarbone, and his scapula, his shoulder blade, was broken. And the EMT was there, and she said, yeah, lift your arm, and you just heard it crackle. It's like, this isn't good, but they couldn't help him at the first clinic. So on the way to the orthopedic clinic, they stopped by the wagon train. He was given a blessing right there as the hand carts are going by. And when he went to the the clinic and they did a second set of, um, a second set of, of x-rays they found there was no broken scapula and no broken ribs they put him in a sling and he drove a wagon the next day no and this is one of maybe 30 stories of amazing and miraculous healings what a blessing yeah so how much notoriety did this get outside of the church i mean you're not hiding a mile long trail of people dressed in pioneer clothes with wagons and horses and everything. That must have garnered a lot of attention. Yeah, it did. In fact, Elder Ballard said, because we, they, we, they captured um, news, especially newspaper clippings, and they had 40 boxes of newspaper clippings from around the world, Elder Ballard said the year after. Remember, this is the first year President Hinckley is the president of the church. Mm. He's willing to interact with the media, and he comes out on the wagon train three times, three or four times. He's where with us. And he, and Elder Ballard had said at like a, a public relations conference that the church had more positive press in 1997 than the entire 150 years before combined. What a blessing. Yeah. People, people wanted to see this old West wagon train and they yeah. came from from we had a BBC film crew that was with us <laughs> the entire time. We had we had interviewers from film crews out of Russia and Poland. It was just really amazing. Japan. Where where did you start and where did you end and how long was the total? So we started in winter quarters in in uh, nineteen ninety seven and we came to Salt Lake and it was a thousand and fifty miles. You did the whole thing. Yeah. So it was about. 
93 days, and we did 20 to 30 miles a day. And you were there the entire time? Yeah. I might have missed a day or two for a church meeting, but that was about it. Uh, that, I, I can't get my head around how big this was. So in, in 97, did you have children at home? We did. We had all, all four of our children were born at that time. Our oldest, our son was 16, and the youngest was four. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so what are we doing with kids? I think Karen should talk about this. <laughs> Karen, what, what, what's yeah. happening with the kids? This is, yeah. this is blowing my mind, guys. This is so big. You, you have to back up and think how, if we have church events now, we plan them for months and months to, down to the detail. This was a by your seat of your pants that we were doing this. In the beginning, we didn't have a sag wagon. Brian went out and bought an old school bus for people who couldn't keep up. We had uh, porta potties that turned over. We in the road. In the the beginning of this, it was like, okay, well, we need this. We better go get it because there was no in-depth planning. And there were so many moving parts that you really couldn't make the plan with so many different... Because we had people who were members of the church and people who weren't. We had lots of cowboys that thought cowboy ways. Mm. And... And so, <laughs> so in the beginning, it, I mean, exciting. Yeah. you know, I took my kids to Omaha. We were living in Kearney, Nebraska at the time. It's about three hours from Omaha. Mm-hmm. And I took my kids uh, out of school to go to Omaha for like the big, let's go, you know, let's go. And we stayed out there for a day or two and I took them back home and put them back in school. And then on the weekend, we'd go back and meet them. And I'd take them back in school. And that went on for about two or three weeks. And I'm like, no, this is way too important um, to not miss a day. And so at that point, I took all my kids out of school. Wonderful. And we just were there from then on every day. Unless, like I say, we had to go to a church meeting or something somewhere for him. And But the kids... Um, it was a whole different story for the kids. It mm. was it was like in the way I described it afterwards. It, it was like a nonstop church social, nonstop. Awesome. And oh, wonderful all day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was not without some very deep challenges. Um, kids getting. Super tired. I don't think we had anybody got sick in our family, but um, just tired. But the bonding. Yeah, pretty powerful. I mean, we still have friends from that 25 years ago that are pretty dear to us. Yeah. When we look back at this, you know, I mean, to me, uh, <clears throat> being older, uh, I think of 1997 as like, you know, a couple of years ago, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, see, it's 2022, so 97 was five years ago. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, 25 years ago, yeah. you know, we're, we're literally talking about, you know, you're not opening up an iPhone on Google Maps, you know, your, your flip phone that you don't want to open because it's roaming <laughs> and you're going to pay roaming fees. I mean, 
we didn't have you didn't have the technology we have today to plan out all of this either. No, it, we hired three men to be sort of the wagon masters in Nebraska, Wyoming, and then Utah, and that was. Uh, I guess I can say it felt like a mistake that we paid anybody because everybody else was a volunteer and our biggest troubles were trying to kind of meet our minds and agree on things because these guys didn't agree mm. and we didn't always agree with each other. So that was a challenge was just sort of dealing with, uh, I think with, with that, but, and, and they planned out the route. And so they knew where we were going to go. That was, that was set and where we would stay each night I thought there was a huge deluge one night in Miller, Nebraska, right on the on the uh, border of Wyoming, and I thought we won't go the next day. And I remember it rained and then uh, a lot, but then mid morning it was okay, and we went ahead. So we went, we kept to our schedule exactly the entire time, which is really kind of amazing when you think of it. It's incredible. Yeah. How did it change your perspective on the pioneers? You know, we had so many people come up and say, oh, I could never have done that. I could never have done that. And I said, yeah, you can. You could. You could have done it. And we had one uh, woman who went the whole way that she said people would come up and say, oh, would you do this again? And she said, why? (laughs) I did it. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I did it. So why do it again? But... Um, and President Hinckley, when he gave us our send-off, he said there are two things that will stay the same as the, as the original pioneers. One will be the weather, and one will be... Uh, human nature. Human nature. Yeah, that's how he put it. Human nature. That sounds very President Hinckley. It does. And, you know, I think that what Karen's saying is, is that, you know, what you thought you think that what it took to be a pioneer was physical ability, and I think we learned it didn't take that, it took faith. Yeah, and I think that you just believed that this was something you should do, then you just went out and did it. One of the one of we had a lot of young uh, adults who came and joined because mm-hmm. they were more free and could come. And there was a girl who was serving in the Independence Missouri Mission, and she was missing major muscles in her leg, she had a a, um, a disability, and she walked every step home from her mission. And oh yet, my and yet gosh, she limped on. basically the entire thousand miles. So that's how she finished her mission. Yeah. This is all so inspiring and yeah. so beautiful. Talk about coming into the Salt Lake Valley. What was that experience like? I'll go first, and then you think about how you might. For me, I was with the the first time we had we had resisted coming into the valley. Of course, we get we'd spend several days at East Canyon Reservoir, and we could have driven in, um, but we resisted seeing the valley until we got to the top of Big Mountain uh, above mm. Immigration Canyon. And when we came up from East Canyon to to Big to uh, to that spot where you could first see the valley, I was really unsure what emotions I would feel. But when I got there, I just was overwhelmed with gratitude that God had allowed us to do this, and He had brought us this far safely. Even though there had been many accidents, we had seen the miracles over and over again, and here we were. And I just went off into the sagebrush and prayed and thanked God that He'd been with us. That was my emotion. And then when we came into the valley and the 50,000 people were there to meet us, I cried for an hour. I was just overwhelmed with emotion. It was a big deal. 
Yeah. It was a really, really big How was deal. it for you? Yeah, I'm, I was just trying to pull up in my mind. I mean, our eight-year-old walked how many miles that day? 19. She walked that whole day. As she, um, no, she was not eight. She was five. Five, five years old, and walking the whole way. she walked that whole way and just was happy that last as day. could be the last day. Yeah, the, she the did The little always. ones rode mostly in the hand carts. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. wagons, yeah. or wagons. Sure. But um, as we came in and, and came to, this is the place right around in there, the vision in my mind was some unit of the church had decided to dress in white and stand kind of a little bit away. Wow. And as you came down, <laughs> you you knew that remembering those people who sacrificed, um, that all that we went through... Um, not nearly as hard as what they went through. We had enough food. We had warm sleeping bags. Nobody died. Um, but showing our respect and love for them, um, it was all worth it. Incredible. So when are we writing a book about this whole thing? You this know, there, is a book. I there mean, have been this... several books that have been written, and I think... Uh, I've, I've just not felt <laughs> pressed to do that. The church did ask for copies of all the journals that people kept mm. um, wow. as we traveled. So they do have that in their archives. The, the few weeks after, I mean, over time, you know, you're like a mission or anything else major in life. You're not thinking about it every day. But those first few weeks when you're not walking, you're sleeping in a bed... You know, warm at home and everything else. How how hard was it to kind of let go of the whole experience and get back into life? <laughs> the first two weeks after the trek, every time I sat in a chair, I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> we were exhausted. Yeah, I bet. But we, we were exhausted. We also had a hard time being inside. Yeah. Mm. So I know that there there was one couple afterwards who... I don't. I think they still sleep outside. They Is that do. right? They Twenty-five do. years later, they built a, a bedroom basically on their porch, and that's where they have slept ever since. Yeah. And I think our little kids had a hard time going to the bathroom in the house. Well, not going to the bathroom. They had a hard time flushing oh, because they hadn't flushed for three months. <laughs> so there were odd oh, things great. about that, kind of oh. making that adjustment going back. But I think it was. For a while, there were still celebrations for a few days. We went to see musicals that had been performed. We stayed in Utah for several weeks with my parents before we went back to Nebraska. And then it became sort of surreal. Did We really did that. You know, it was sort of the question on our minds. What a beautiful, beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love hearing about it. I I don't know. It, I, I just think it's so, so amazing what you guys did and... So let's go to today now. Uh, I'm understanding that going on large adventures is not necessarily that far outside of uh, your normal life anyway. Tell us some of the other adventures you've done and what you got coming up. Well, we, we kind of, I think, have an identity as an adventurous family. 
I get to teach some outdoor classes at BYU, like whitewater rafting and canyoneering and Dutch oven cooking sort of on the side. So we're pretty involved as a family, especially in whitewater rafting, canyoneering. We go on backpacking trips together. So we do a lot of those kinds of adventures and have done those for a while. But we've got a new adventure coming up. Do you want to tell about that? You know, since the wagon train, Brian has had this yearning to um, give people experiences. And so as part of this adventure uh, mindset, he, we've led multiple study abroads with BYU students. And, mm. and so we've kind of incorporated that, and a lot of those students have joined us in what we do with, with our family and just kind of built on this idea that experiences, and which you know, leads to the department that he's in, um, that experiences change people. For sure. Yeah, I think that I think you're right. I'm glad you brought that up because I, one of the things that I think keeps me seeking these adventures and seeking to take students and and friends and family to have adventures is because of the way we bond, we we were bonded on the wagon train. Yeah. In a way that I have not yet replicated. It was mm. I I like to say that we felt a taste of Zion and I think that there was a really wise historian at the, in 1997 who wrote um, the pioneers, when they came west along the along the Pioneer Trail, thought that they were coming to Zion, and what they didn't know is they were bringing it with them, oh, and that it formed that beautiful in the journey. And I think that's you're right. I, I think that my life has probably been, can we replicate that feeling? And so we go on adventures to do that. <laughs> oh, amazing. I did want to say one other thing though about treks because lots more people have had experiences with treks than went on the wagon train and traveled the whole trail we learned really quickly people would come to us and and say things like our our steak did a trek and it can't be anything like this and then they would describe the experiences they had and the way they felt and the bonding that they experienced and we realized that they were having the same experiences mm. that we were having over a long period of time. They were having them even with the three and four day uh, experiences that, that were a part of their lives. Beautiful. Just beautiful. Mm. And I realized that that was part of that spirit of Elijah. Mm. That when you are remembering when you, and, and going as far as reenacting, then it's that spirit of Elijah that comes and accompanies uh, all these reenactors. I love it. What an incredible experience. And I just, I can only imagine. I mean, you must have, you could probably spend hours with the people you met, the things that you went through, the spirit you felt. What a blessing you both are for so many. And now you're, uh, you teach Sunday school in your ward, is that right? Uh, We did, but we taught for four years and now we've just barely been released. Yeah, were you teaching gospel doctrine? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I taught gospel doctrine in our ward for four years. I got to do the yeah. the single rotation. Favorite calling ever. I That's love great. teaching gospel doctrine. Well, you are so popular in your ward that it was a member of your ward <laughs> that reached out to my producer and suggested it. I should mention because we didn't mention at the beginning we're in the same stake. We've never yeah. met. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, this has just been a total pleasure. We're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask all of our guests. You can choose who wants to go first on this one. Why don't we start with you, Brian? Okay. So what does being a member of the church mean to you? So 
I'm a climber and a canyoneer and, and spend time on rocks. And one of the things that uh, we talk about as a climber, canyoneering, is, is we use anchors, ways that, that, that we have been able to attach uh, support and strength into the rock um, by, with ropes, but oftentimes with bolts. And when we find an anchor that is, is perfect, that, that's not going to come loose, and we have total confidence in it, we call it bomber. So it's a bomber anchor. And I think for me, as I've thought about this question, I think that being a member of the church is, and the church is my bomber anchor. I can, I can, with total faith and confidence, hang on to it. And even though I might make mistakes in my life's adventures, I, it's not something that is ever going to cause me to fall. I'm, I depend upon it and it, uh, it is my, my anchor. Incredible. That is beautiful. All right, Karen. Yeah, you know, I because I haven't always been a member of the church, I think I have a little different perspective, maybe, maybe not, than people who have always had it. Um, and so I, I look at it as I found my way home. That... Um, For so many years that I was living a worldly, uh, making worldly choices and and living, making those um, ways of living in my life, that when I found the church and committed to it, which I have never wavered from, I I can't say that my, my faith in the church has stayed static because it ebbs and flows. As we have challenges with our children, as we have challenges, you know, in our marriage, um, that things ebb and flow. But it's it's my it's it was coming home, mm. and the experiences that I have had, particularly, I had a very moving experience on the wagon train with some of my ancestors, and. Those few experiences in my life are, um, they're my tether. They're, they're what I hold on to when I, when I start um, questioning or, you know, moving away from where I know I should be. That brings me back, and, it, and that's my, my tether to home, to my heavenly home. Beautiful. They are an amazing couple who got to be uh, a key part of a great part of our church history. Brian and Karen Hill, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Glad to be here. And my special thanks to Brian and Karen Hill. What incredible people they are. I was so grateful to have them in our home and to get to sit down with them. They are tremendous people. And uh, I look forward to seeing them at stake events. You know, so funny that we're in the same stake and and had never met or even heard of each other. <laughs> they are wonderful people. Thank you, Brian and Karen. Uh, this week in my Latter-day Life, you know, we, we actually recorded with Brian and Karen several weeks ago. We're always a few weeks ahead uh, for our episodes. And after we got done talking... You know, and especially Brian mentioned uh, Trek and how it's kind of the closest thing we can do. It's not as epic as the wagon train reenactment that they did, but uh, 
You know, Trek was one of those things that I had no interest in whatsoever. Uh, I never did it as a youth. It wasn't something, I don't think our stake ever did it, but certainly something I had never done. Then it was something our ward did and, and we would send kids on it or whatever, but I had no interest. Now, I am not an outdoors person. I don't enjoy camping. I don't particularly love hiking. I enjoy going out and walking, but I'm not a hiker, certainly. And if I'm being honest, the whole history of the pioneers has just never grabbed me. It's never been something that's been super important to me. And about eight years ago, I got a call from a dear friend, Ron Torgerson, who is in our bishopric at the time, and he called and said, hey, we'd like you and Vanessa to be a ma and pa on Trek this year. And instantly my heart sank, and I said, Ron, I I can't do this. And he said, I know, but you'll be fine. You're going to do it. (laughs) Ron and I have that relationship. And uh, then I told my wife, and I think she was really excited about it. She loves hiking, loves the outdoors, but I was miserable. By the way, I also hate the heat. I do not enjoy being outside doing things when it's hot, and I knew it was going to be hot. And so I was just dreading it, and I literally kept thinking, how do I get out of this trek? There's no way that I am going. But as the time came, uh, and I prayed about it, and I will tell you, I prayed my guts out. I actually fasted that I'd be able to do it, uh, because I was so, so dreading it. And out of total fairness and disclosure, I did sleep in my car because <laughs> I hate sleeping in tents. Uh, but what we got there, and I was still kind of in this terrible mindset, and it was super hot. But the next morning, the weather kind of broke, and actually it was kind of rainy and cool all week, which was a blessing for me. It also created some challenges. <laughs> but that first morning, we were with our families, these sweet, sweet teenagers, And we started hiking and we started singing and talking. And then we stopped at all of these historical places. And I was filled with the spirit of the pioneers. And I fell in love with Trek. I loved it so much. I had the best time. And we had these incredible young men and young women who were with us that we got to know so well. And I had three or four of my kids with us on that Trek in other families. And we just had the best time. And I was so grateful that I didn't say no, so thankful that I was able to go and push through and just had such an incredible experience. Uh, It was hard. It was really challenging. We're not sure if it was uh, a type of flower or weed that was out there or if it was just sunscreen, but two of the days my eyes gooped over and I, the, the last day I literally could not open my eyes. And a wonderful sister in our ward, Sister Steele, actually walked uh, down the trail and I held her arm as my wife went ahead with uh, our family, with our kids. And I learned so many sacred things through that process. So many things about my ancestors and so many things about my life as I was literally walking blind along the trek trail. And it was not easy, and I was way out of my comfort zone. But man, I loved it. And then talking to Brian and Karen, I was just thinking back to Trek and knowing we're going this summer, but we hadn't been called to be in Ma and Pa or anything. And and I was sort of sad, just going, I would love to go again. But if it's not our time, it's not our time. 
And then very shortly after my conversation with the Hills, I got a phone call from a member of our bishopric who asked if me and my wife, if we would be over food for Trek this year. And I said, yes, let's do it. Oh, I'm so excited. So we're already calling people to work with us and planning out menus so that we can just have awesome food. And I can't wait to get to spend the time. I won't be out on the trail hiking with them. I'll be back at the camp. But what a blessing. And recently, uh, there's been on social media some buzz. I've noticed some people sort of deriding Trek and, and bringing out some negatives about it. And, you know, I'm not going to comment on on their thoughts. I can only share personally. I have watched Trek change lives. I have watched young men and young women grow. I've watched leaders grow. I've seen people change. And, and I think it's such a blessing to get to reconnect with our pioneer ancestors and to understand better the sacrifices that were made for us in building this incredible church. I love it. I'm so excited to be a part of it in August. And literally, I just cannot wait and very grateful for this huge blessing. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for listening again this week. We really appreciate it. If you know someone who would make a great guest, we do take suggestions. Please just email guest at latterdaylives.com. Uh, we'd love to talk to people you are you are interested in. If you enjoy the show, if you could leave us a five-star review and what helps us Equally is, you know, if you enjoy a specific episode and you see a Facebook post or a post or an Instagram post, if you could share that post, we would just really appreciate that. It, it certainly helps other people to find the show. And the more listeners we get, the, the more we're able to get all the guests that we want to come on board. So we just appreciate it. The Latter-day Lives podcast is produced by Gene Chittister, social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Let's go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.